Hi, my name is Jorge Crecis, and almost a year ago, I created an online training program called Towards Vivencia. So far, the journey has been amazing, and now we are an online community with people from more than 16 different countries. Through the program, people get a consistent training for more than 12 months, which is an incredible asset in this crazy life of the artist. It's a fast-growing international community where people support each other, create networks and connections. We help people to intensify the stage presence, becoming more confident, more playful, and definitely enjoying more their careers. And we provide tools of uh, self-care. As the training continues to grow, this podcast is the latest addition to our program. We provide more resources for our participants. And here I speak with people I greatly admire. And during our conversations, the participants of the training are invited to ask questions live and to take part of the conversation. We are about to open the fourth edition in a few weeks, so make sure you don't miss the early bird deadline. To get the latest updates about the Towards Vivencia program or the podcast, make sure you subscribe to this podcast or to our newsletter. It is my great pleasure to introduce you the second guest on the Towards Vivencia conversation with, this time, Ben Duke. This was a very intense and profound conversation where initially I made a very difficult first question to Ben. We talk about what makes a performer an incredible one and how Ben spots them. What are the barriers between the UK and Europe? How to keep your energy and the quality of your work by saying no to projects that doesn't serve your strategic or artistic vision and how to manage the financial uncertainty that comes with saying no. How the quicker we define ourselves, the easier it is for the world to understand us and to provide the opportunities that we need. Without any further delay, here you have the second episode of Towards Vivencia in Conversation With. Here we are. Here we are. Ben, thank you so much for having me today in your beautiful place and for agreeing to be part of our Towards Vivencia in Conversation with podcast. You're welcome. It's fantastic to be here back after, five, after many years. And uh, you and I, we know each other for, for, for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was coming on the train journey and I was remember that probably the first time that we have a, a connection was 2011 mm -hmm. with our both pieces where at the same time on the stage and I had to look at the, um, at the title because I, I didn't remember the title, Up, up the Down Escalator. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because I was going to introduce you. It's like, is this guy who is an amazing choreographer, an amazing uh, director, who won the National Critic Award in 2016, who was nominated for the Olivier Award last year for GOAT, for Rambert. But the most important thing about him is like he made pieces that created moments that you remember forever. And I was remembering that I remember this line of the guy looking at the love of his life at the top of the escalator, of the longest escalator in London, mm. who is in Angel. Yeah. <laughs> and when I look at the yeah, title, you're like, oh, how cool yeah, yeah. it's the long sky. I don't remember the title, but I remember those moments. Uh, so that's my introduction of Ben. He's someone who is <laughs> incredibly talented at creating those kind of moments. But something that took me my attention over the last few days is I was really excited about coming and, 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 and interviewing you, talk to you. And I was telling people, I'm going to talk to Ben Duke this week. And everyone was very jealous. He's like, he's amazing. You really like him. He's someone very, very talented, but very approachable, very likable. 
and everyone was saying that in a very genuine way when which in the dance world in the world is like you hear very mixed reviews about people but with you it was very very consistent so i'm not going to ask you what makes you likable <laughs> but i'm going to ask you if you have other people in your life that you feel that they are very likable that that they were making a big impression in you and and why is that why why do you think is that Wow. Um, yeah. Well, we should have we should have my family in here to kind of counteract that uh, opinion, or to maybe offer something else. I don't know about the idea of being likable. I suppose uh, it's not something that I consider, but I do. Um, I'm, I'm definitely have uh, a lot of time for people who are. Are kind and um, I think that that's something probably my dad has somehow instilled in me as a way of being in the world he, he was never impressed by people who were who were kind of uh, boastful or or who were kind of full of themselves and as I get older I realize that there's something about that that I've uh, yeah internalized or yeah I'm trying to think now about people who I think of in that in that way. I think definitely in in the kind of I mean certainly in the dance world that idea of uh, kind of um, a way of working which involved uh, negativity and, and criticism and and kind of uh, uh, kind of hierarchical relationship all of that stuff I've felt existed but was something that was never particularly interesting mm. to me I, I, it never helped helped me I think some people maybe responded to that kind of way of work you know it's like uh, I don't know maybe maybe also I feel like there's something and and this is this is not me trying to be likable this is me almost feeling like there's a kind of um, there's an interest in in other people and, and in how you can extract, if, I, if that makes it sound a bit uh, selfish, but maybe it is selfish, how, how you can kind of get things out of, out of people. And that's always been interesting to me. And, and it's always been about what they have. And so there's a kind of atmosphere of, um, f for me, it has to be an atmosphere of um, ease like it has to be easy it, it can't be fearful and it can't be um, uh, right and wrong it can't be like you've got to impress me so so there's something around that feeling which I think is uh, yeah in in me somehow I'm a bit stumped by that question <laughs> <laughs> I like to start with difficult yeah. questions yeah yeah that was um, interesting but it was very genuine. I was very surprised of the consistency of the of how people mm -hmm. regards to Ben Duke, and mm -hmm. it was very very interesting. And you were talking about how to extract from people, mm. and how uh, that way of, of being so disciplined in the studio to the point of being not bossy but nasty as well. Sometimes mm. it, it works for other people, but it's not your way. Mm. And in the same way, I would like to ask you about this: like, what people is like you are working at the moment with someone who is. It's, it's incredible. I, I fell in love with her, with her artistically the first time that I saw her in mm -hmm. Scottish Dance Theatre, Solen. Mm. So I would like to ask you what what it takes your attention from those performers before you know them personally. What 
let, let's try to clarify the question. What it makes a performer something that you watch on a stage and you say, hey, you're an incredible performer. Mm. And how, the second question is like, how you nurture that in workshops or directing mm. them? Yeah. Um, uh, I think, I mean, I, I also, yeah, I met Selene when I went to work with Scottish Dance Theatre. And as usual, you know, I begin the process with uh, improvisations and tasks and things like this. And um, I like things to to kind of run on for quite a long time. So that place where people slightly lose track of what they're supposed to be doing or they get a bit bored or... I, I like going into this place and, and also sometimes for me going, oh, I'm a bit bored now or, or letting myself kind of relax into that place. And in, in that place, I, I just notice who I watch or where my eyes go and what it is I don't even know what it is about that but I think that Selene is definitely she's very watchable and I mean maybe we'll talk more about that because that's another slightly vague kind of phrase but there's something um, that I trust about that and I think it's 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 probably something that we all have but you know, it turns out that I like Selene. Like, I, I I see her in the studio environment and, and I think she's great. And then later it turns out that I like her. And normally it's that way. It's it's odd if I think they're amazing and then I talk to them afterwards and I'm like, wow. So, so it's probably just the same thing that we have with everyone in how we relate to people. There's a chemistry or there's a relationship or there's something about someone which makes you think I could be a friend with you or that there's something interesting about them to you so it feels it felt like that and and, and also she, also she was funny so the thing about people who make me laugh is another thing that draws me towards people so yeah with Selene it was like that in terms of nurturing it I think that um yeah I feel certainly this last process we've been through it's been a lot about space and the reason I asked Selena is because I knew that she could sit in this space with me and and the space is often quite unstructured and quite uh you know what are we doing and we sit in that little room over there and we stare out the window and Selene maybe does her emails while she's waiting for something to happen and then suddenly some we have a thought and we try something and then we sit back into inactivity and it was important that someone could could be in that space and trust its um, indirectness and I think because I'd worked with Selene uh, yeah three times on three projects before and I knew her well enough so it didn't feel so much like I was nurturing her but I was trusting her and I was setting up an environment in which um, hopefully she could kind of offer well, she did offer, you know, of herself uh, very generously and kind of consistently. So, yeah, the nurturing feels a bit like uh, neglect. Mm. <laughs> like the idea of kind of uh, creating space. Mm. And I think I, I love that feeling of space. And I know for some people they don't. And uh, so... I think there's performers who I think are amazing, but I think we wouldn't work so well together because that space would be frustrating for them. Mm. I was fascinated by the idea of like, you watch them, you get 
a bit bored to mm. that, you get comfortable in that place, and then you reckon where your eyes goes. Is that a conscious process, or is just because it's happening now in the conversation? Is something that you've been developing over the, over the time as, as a director? It's like you train yourself to realize, okay, in that moment, I am watching at this person. Um, it's something I've thought about. I don't know if it's something that I... Yeah, I, th I suppose it's something I've thought of. I remember reading this thing, or one of the first pieces that I saw and loved was this Alan, Alan Patel show. Um, in 1997? Possibly. The one that it says in your bio? Oh, yeah, that one. Well, no, actually, that one, yeah, that one I saw for, that was the Bernadette which was on the, the uh, Dodgem track, yeah, which is amazing. And then, I don't know, maybe two years later, I saw a piece called Eat Sop Bark, which she did, which was, um, well, C.D. Larby was dancing in it, and he was amazing. And the show was chaos, or it felt like chaos. And uh, there's people singing, and then there's someone catching like cannonballs on their stomach, and there's someone. The thing was like, what? and and I I had this feeling of like, wow, this is chaos, but I'm enjoying the fact that I have a freedom to kind of look here or to watch there. And then at the end, when I spoke to people, and I thought everyone's experience of that was going to be really different, but actually everyone had seen the same things. So there was something about stuff is happening but he he had cleverly or somehow he'd understood that our that our eyes will go to certain places so in a way we didn't we didn't miss stuff we, we we'd somehow taken it all in and I love that idea because it's not like a film where we're, we we don't have so much choice of where we're looking I felt like I had so much choice and so much freedom to piece this show together but we'd Lots of us had done the same piecing together, so I felt freedom. But actually, afterwards, I was like, "Ah, it's more, it's more controlled and more, more um, crafted than I than I thought." And that was interesting to me, and I was interested in why we had looked at the same things or why we had gone that. So I had I had that feeling of, yeah, what is that about? And in improvisations, the thing of uh, I'm not entirely sure why, but I but I try and trust that instinct. And sometimes that does turn into a theory about it, you know, very obvious things like you have a room full of people and one person stands still and then you, you watch them or you have a room stage full of everyone interacting and someone stops and turns to the audience. So I would like to pick up on um, something that we've said uh, over the last few minutes about being something being watchable mm. and that takes your attention. Mm. Are you trying consciously to do that through your directing, either when you are on a stage or when you're not, or it's something that you are just working and see what happens and where the audience direct their attention? Um, I feel like I'm interested in controlling that. Yeah, but, you know, the last... You know, lost the last two lost dog pieces. One's a solo, and the, this one is a duet. And um, there's not loads of choice there. <laughs> it's so few people. <laughs> um, the piece I did with Rombe, there were more people, and I became more aware then of of um, where, yeah, where people might look. So I think with that process, there was a more conscious kind of thinking around that.
um, there's no like magic tricks about it, but it's just noticing in, in kind of rehearsal or as you watch things like um, where does my eye go and what, what do I miss and do I want to miss that and do I want to kind of see that? And I think for me that's a lot to do with uh, kind of boredom or trying to be honest about boredom and trying to be honest about how long I'm interested in something or how long something will hold my attention and um, how, yeah, one of the one of the things that came up often in, in the Rombert rehearsal was this idea of like kind of doing nothing and people doing nothing and there's different ways of doing nothing and one can really pull focus mm-hmm. and one can allow people to um, temporarily kind of disappear and uh, which one do we want? <laughs> Sometimes you want a mixture of those things and trying to uh, trying to work out what what that is that um, allows people to be seen or, or not seen. That, that stuff is really interesting for me, definitely. But it's, it's often in, in the kind of uh, the area where there's... Actually, I'm not sure that's true. I was going to say it's often in an area where there's not much activity. But actually, people can be, do, people can be very active and also not, not seen. You know, they can be not seen. But maybe that's slightly different to uh, um, what we're talking about. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I think direct my, my next, uh, what I was going to, to follow this conversation is like, okay, could you be more um, concrete in that idea? Because you have, I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off you in Paradise Lost. Mm. But you were on the stage. Mm. And there was no, nothing more than, than, than you, a chair, and very little more. Mm. So it was kind of like my, my attention was there because it was, it was what it was happening. I'm really looking forward to see Juliet and Romeo in a few mm. weeks, in a couple of weeks. Um, so when you're creating with other groups, when you're outside, how do you direct the... How, how is the things of not doing anything that makes people more visible? Mm. Or not doing anything that makes them disappear or move them a lot to make them disappear. Can you be mm. more, could you recall any, any of those moments that um, you, you make that choice as a director? Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we ended up talking about quite a lot in the Rombert project was um, about, yeah, it was around this idea of doing nothing and, I realized that uh, I was in my own practice kind of doing nothing on stage was was a kind of an activity and I found it really hard to communicate what that was to, to a group of people who, if I can generalize, and this isn't true of all of them, but if I was to generalize about that particular situation, a lot of them hadn't spent that much time doing nothing on stage. Like most of them, when they were on stage, they were doing usually really complicated choreography. They were doing things. So, so the kind of inactivity thing was not so much part of their thing. And I was asking them quite a lot of them for quite a lot of the time to do nothing. And what the, what what I felt we discovered a bit in that was that, was that the doing nothing if the, if the doing nothing is literally like uh, the, you you kind of tune out or you you think about um, 
you're shopping, you're shopping or something, then I'm watching you and I'm like, I know that you're thinking about your shopping. I don't know how I know that, but I know that you are. And so it turns out that the, be- the doing nothing somehow had to keep the, it's almost, it was almost like a kind of bubble around the work. It had to keep our focus in. So they're doing nothing had to involve their attention that they, they had to stay interested in what was happening on stage. Otherwise we would go to them and be like, oh, I've, I'm not interested. I, I would follow your interest as it floats away from this piece or lack of interest. So it felt like there was something about that, which, which had to hold, hold, hold us as audience. Like if you're watching on stage, you are in a way um, somehow guiding the audience. And, I, th- I found that really interesting and, and it made me think about the, the kind of solo piece like Paradise Lost that actually, it's almost that that's, that's what's tiring about that kind of process it's, or, or, or performing that show is that you have to stay interested in what you're doing and if I'm not interested, then the audience will know like, as if by magic, they'll, they'll know that straight away and maybe those things are all just you know, we know that situation socially, like if you feel like someone is suddenly looking past you or whatever, like we, we can read it. But I think it's interesting that we can, we can also read it over big distances, like onto the stage. Um, so that was one of the things we, we said we have to, and it made sense to me of all this stuff, which when I was training at drama school, I would find really annoying, this kind of character backstory stuff you know you spend all this time you'd be like ah oh, who cares just come on stage and do it but but in this piece where i was like okay these people don't have much to do we have to talk a bit about this about how this situation might make you feel or or, or what it could be like so that so that so that it can hold it so that doing nothing holds it and it's not that i need to be looking at you and go wow they're so fascinating look at their they're kind of nothing acting you know if you do that too much that's also not right but I, but i need you to, to to kind of hold it so that was a strange kind of thing about you want them to be not um pulling focus but also not letting the the bubble of the piece uh, burst somehow yeah yeah and you said a few times uh, holding us uh, and this is something that in Spain in Spanish we don't have it's uh, holding the space right. it's such a beautiful concept that yeah. I, it's very difficult to explain no? yeah. and in towards vivencia in the way that we explain or we training is by training playfulness what does yeah. it mean and how you be playful even if you are doing nothing yeah how you are in, in unitask not multitasking but in the task in whatever you're uh-huh. doing and then how important is the commitment that if you don't perform, no one else can perform for you. You became yeah. the doer, no? Something coming yeah, yeah, from Grotowski. Yeah. Right. And you were talking about the, the background stories, probably from Stanislavski mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that, from acting school. Uh, do, do you have tools or tips to tell the people who are listening to us or the, or the performers that you were working with for not thinking about the grocery mm. shop and being there holding us, holding the space? Yeah. Um... Uh, I think it's I think it's quite simple but I think it's a practice and I think that the practice is about uh, the engagement of the imagination and I didn't know this when I first started training in dance but certainly a lot of the dance training that I went through I realized that wasn't being spoken about 
there were moments of like visualization and things like this, but I was like, we are not really being asked to engage our imagination. And that means that it's really difficult to engage your imagination when you need to. Maybe it is a skill. It's something that we all have as children, obviously, and we're all very good at it. And then at a certain point, we do it less and less and we lose that thing. And I feel like it's something that needs to be practiced because then you can enjoy the imaginative world. And it's a game. I mean, you're talking about playfulness. So it's like we're setting up a situation where I'm saying, okay, um, this person here is going to be chosen to be sacrificed. So we're following the kind of rite of spring thing. This is the Rombert piece. What would it be like to be watching that? To, to imagine that someone is going to be sacrificed. And we all know that this is a, a, a fake and, uh, you know, ridiculous situation. But your imagination can do that thing of accepting it's ridiculous and fake. But... I still need to imagine what this is like. I love to disappear into those imaginative places mm. and to play that particular game. And I think that those people on stage also needed to enter into that imaginative game. So in terms of a skill, I think it's something like that, which is, I think, what a lot of acting exercises ask us to do. But a lot of dance training ignores yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's I think it's very trainable. Yeah, why we're creating this training. Yeah, yeah. And I don't call it any other thing, but it's a training yeah. program. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something that you need to train definitely. Yeah. And and I agree with you. Acting is something that they've been researching and and writing about it and and trying to put their fingers on it. And it's very very rational. It's very mental. It's mm. very. But how do you engage that imagination? That 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 thing with with your body when there yeah. is sometimes in dance by by definition and by nature many times it's abstract there is not yeah. that storytelling that yes you can create your imagine imaginary your mm -hmm. ima yeah. imaginary within that piece but sometimes it's not given to you from yeah. the director so it's it's definitely a skill and i was going to jump into something different but you said something very very nice and very beautiful that i would like to pick in, a bit on something and one of my favorite books ever is the Invisible Actor by Yoshi Oida. I have it in front of my by my bed and mm -hmm. look at it, and I have four or five copies in my place because I give it to people. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things. So you said I love to disappear on those imaginative places. Mm. Can you tell me what do you mean more about I like to disappear? <laughs> my my first experience of of acting and kind of being on stage was. Um, a bit like a disappearance or a kind of escape. It felt like an escape for me from um, who I was and the kind of limits of my own kind of personality and situation. And so there was something about a, an escape. I think that's one of the things I love about the stage is that you, you've got this really uh, conflicting thing of, of uh, trying to go in but not disappear. So, so I want to disappear myself, but I don't want to disappear from the audience because that's, again, something which we've all seen on stage and it's not so, yeah, not so interesting. Um, I don't, I don't think it's so interesting. 
it's it's very difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Because Joshua talks about being the invisible. Yeah. It's like uh, the person becomes invisible to make the character visible. Mm-hmm. You talk about disappearing. I like to talk about it as uh, active surrendering. Mm-hmm. You can like surrender your ego, your yourself, your mm-hmm. your identity for something else to exist mm-hmm. to you. So it's something that mm-hmm. we all talk in different ways. Yes, and it's one of the the magic moments as performer when that happens. It's like. Okay, I've done my job. Mm. You just mentioned that uh, in your acting school, you were at Guildford, if I'm yes. right. Yeah. Then you did uh, dance at the London Women's Dance School. Yeah. And then you have a degree in literature, right? Yes. So you have three degrees. Uh, kind of. The, the kind of, I like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the drama school was a year course. So it was a postgraduate something. Uh, yeah, a one-year course. Mm. How much that has to do with curiosity and and research and getting to know more how much that has to do and I'm speaking from a personal point of view with imposter syndrome mm-hmm. I never know enough mm-hmm. and yeah and, th- and then in your bio you said that your whole career is trying to reconcile those three things together so yeah how much is uh, curiosity research how much it has to do with <laughs> imposter syndrome I need yeah. to know more yeah and how, and how you're trying to reconcile those three things yeah I guess a mixture, isn't it? I think that, like everything, we, you know, I make sense of it later in in my life. I think at the time I was just following a a, a thing that was to do with circumstance, uh, that was to do with curiosity, that was also to do with a slightly kind of um, short-term view. I was interested in performing and acting, but was kind of persuaded that it was good to do a more academic, subject as a degree and I loved that degree as well so there was something about that which was appealing to me the acting was still one of the kind of most important things to me while at university so I thought okay I'll go into this and then while I was studying acting I was feeling like ah this isn't quite the thing it was almost like a sense of looking for the thing and feeling like it's almost here but it's not quite and then arriving in dance and feeling like Ah, this is the thing. As I go through it, I reject. So I, I, I reject the cerebral world of English literature and I go into acting and then I reject the world of voice and I go into dance. And then at the end of that, I'm like, actually, no, it's it's somehow all of these things kind of fused together. But definitely that I recognize that feeling of wanting to become an expert and wanting to know more. And yeah there was a definite point where I, I kind of felt like actually this this is enough I have to I have to get on now I so it's, it's fantastic that you you felt that at some point it was enough I did yeah I think I recognized that I probably wasn't gonna become the dancer that I thought I could become when I started so there was a kind of letting go of that idea I remember doing a workshop with Chris Herring, who was setting up lots of very long improvisations, full of confusion. He loved everyone to be confused, and and everyone was confused, and and, uh, the boundary between um, reality and play was very confusing, and no one really knew what was... People kept stopping the improvisation and not knowing whether we had stopped or whether we were carrying on or whether the conversation we were having was outside the improvisation and all of this stuff, which, which was amazing, but... You know, he said, what, what are you here for? And are, are you here to learn more skills? Are you here to get better at um, being yourself? 
I thought, oh, that's much, that's a good idea, isn't it? Because also then you can just, that can be a, an ongoing practice, but it doesn't involve, you know, me learning how to break dance or me learning how to, it doesn't involve that. It involves this thing of me going, okay, let's just, let's, let's just get on with that. And I remember that phrase really clearly because I was like, oh yeah, I'm not here to learn any more skills. I've got to stop trying to learn more skills and get on with this other thing, which is, yeah, working out who you are. Oh, what a magical moment. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, that, that's enough. Let's, let's concentrate in, yeah. in what it makes me special because we are all, and I know it's a cop-out and yeah, a cliche yeah. that we are all special. Yeah. But actually, we are unique. Yeah. I don't know if you're special, but unique mm. for sure. The, mm. Your thoughts are not my mm. thoughts and, and we can philosophize about what the self is. Mm. But when, this is, this is how we started the project. It's like, what, what are the skills that you have yeah. for making who you are? And it's so important. Yeah. So what are your skills? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think that, uh, yeah, I think it was about uh, drawing these things together. And the process of doing Paradise Lost was was kind of that in a way. I think that was the moment where I tried very consciously to be honest about uh, who... I was and to try and bring these things together so it felt like this the, the skill was a, a movement between these these places and and uh, this was my history and my kind of makeup and um, it felt very freeing to kind of admit that and to say ah this is a book that I studied, a poem that I studied, and this is uh, my voice and this is my sense of humor and this is how I move <laughs> and to try and just put all that in, in the thing. So it felt almost like um, not, not an anti-skill, but it felt like a... Um, a loosening of my grip on on the skill that I wanted. <laughs> so certainly with the dancing, I imagine Paradise Lost was going to have a lot more dancing. And there's a bit in Paradise Lost where I talk about a solo that I imagine, but I don't do it because... And, and that was true. That was the process. I, I kept wanting to make this amazing solo, and I kept trying, and each time it kind of collapsed on itself. So I was like, okay instead of holding on to this, if I loosen my grip on this and I just tell the audience that this is what was going to happen here, but I'm just going to tell you about it because there's actually nothing. <laughs> there's, there's a few little fragments, so there's really nothing here. And yeah, that was um, very joyful. And, and, and uh, yeah, so it felt weirdly like it was... I mean, it was hard work. It, the, the process was hard work, but it felt like there was something in that process that was uh, like, okay, um, yeah, a, 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 a kind of relaxing somehow. It doesn't feel like a skill, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a process, yeah. Or, or a state. A state. A state uh, yeah. I mean, the state of, I lose grip of it. Yeah. It's, uh, I like to, to explain it is like I made peace with myself. I yeah. had this this big enemy for years. Like you're not enough. You're not doing mm. it. And this is the moment that 
you you made peace with that. You look great, and it's yeah. it's fantastic. And I, yeah. I like to hear you because it's from this part is very reassuring. So thank you for that because <laughs> you you described this solo, which I remember in this moment it was a big jump. I think you said at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. These kind of processes make us a tiny bit more friends of of ourselves, and this is how I see it. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really really yeah. nice i'm very happy to hear that paradise lost was that for yeah. you yeah yeah definitely if that was paradise lost mm. what is uh juliet and romeo you know i had this breakthrough it felt like a breakthrough in paradise lost like oh, yes i've i know i know now how to do this and we all know those things they're like kind of false dawns aren't they because then i was like okay so we're gonna do something similar a different theme and then of course i started juliet and romeo and i was like ah this is totally different and so difficult and very simply the fact that I wasn't um, I, I needed to have a relationship with someone on stage so my relationship in Paradise Lost was just between me and the audience and I worked out some things about that and how that worked and, and how I could play with that Paradise Lost I am um, talking about stuff which is autobiographical and private and I'm sharing it here so there's this thing for me of like, what, what am I doing? You know, why as a performer am I happy to share with a whole lot of strangers? And now in this piece, I'm trying to deal with how do you share uh, a relationship? Like, how do you, you, how do you do that? So it was really like, you know, twisting my head around, and um, it was very difficult. And then, again, there was a point where I was like, okay, I have to let go of that piece that I thought it was going to be and work out what this piece is. And, well, you'll see, when you see the piece, it's like, it's a relationship where we've set up this kind of very uh, obvious connection with the audience of saying, okay, you we need you to, to witness our relationship and to kind of help us with our relationship by, by watching it. Um, so yeah, it's, it was, uh, it was, it was, um, and yeah, I don't know, as usual, that thing, something's successful and feels like it's, it's giving you a new way of working. And then you try and apply that to the next piece and suddenly you're like, Oh, we're back to the beginning again. We don't, I don't really know anything. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's a progression, but it's also like, you know, somewhere it's somewhere, it's not, it doesn't go like this. It's like somewhere else. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, somehow you trust that the information is helping, like the, th the process you've been through is helping. How is it growing while it's mm. being performed? Mm. Yeah, it, the ending of the show has, has shifted a lot. This was like us wandering through going, we could end here or do we need another five minutes? Where, where do we end this piece? Because it's like a kind of, yeah, walking into the darkness. Um, yeah, have you nailed it? The end? I don't know. We'll have to talk about it after you've seen it. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. But I feel happier with it. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing friends, actually. So okay. it's going to be at the place. At the place, yeah. The week of the 17th of yeah. Uh, so it's, June. Yeah. It's going to be 18, 19. Yes, yeah, Tuesday to Saturday. So Tuesday to Saturday. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I think there's not many tickets left, so oh, we great. wanted to book it because Fantastic. it was a bit difficult to, to book oh, it for me. It's, it's great. Mm. Um, so this I don't know about your work because I've seen a few pieces. I've seen in Needs mm. Horses, I've seen mm. Paradise Lost, I've seen uh, Up Down the Escalator. Mm. How would be different uh, Juliet and Romeo if I go on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or Saturday? Would it be any different? Would it be the, exactly the same piece to the dots? Um, I think probably it would feel similar. I mean, I'm interested in that experience inside, which can feel so varied and outside can seem not very varied at all. So, uh, yeah, I think it's similar if you saw it each night. Yeah. What's next for you? You told me that you've been just in Kiev. Uh, you're going to be at the place in a couple of weeks. Yes. Tell me what, what's your life looking at, um, at the moment. Yes, yeah, so uh, so we're doing Juliet and Romeo as yeah, British Council the last week of the Fringe Festival. We have some dates in the autumn. We have dates in spring next year for Juliet and Romeo. Um, I'm going to try and step out of the piece and give someone else the role. So someone else will perform with Solène. And that's probably, yeah, that's the first time we've done that. So we're trying to, as a way of, yeah, increasing our, I don't know, activity, I suppose, to have that piece touring and, and uh, for me to be working on, on something else. And, uh, yeah, we're trying to get some... R&D time in for for a new piece kind of later this to start working on it later this year and uh, yeah that's um, I don't know so much about that at the moment but uh, again I've decided not to be in this next one um, which means that this conversation is interesting because you're when I'm outside I have to try and articulate things which I don't articulate when I'm doing it myself. Uh, so, yes, processes, exercises, whatever that thing is. Um, uh, yeah, trying to kind of keep the connection to why I want to do it, if you know what I mean. So, so when I'm inside the work, like Paradise Lost, it was about the experience of being a parent and Juliet and Romeo was about my experience of um being uh in a long-term relationship not not that the piece is about my relationship with pippa but but it's about something of what that experience is so so i can feel a very clear uh personal connection to it so this next piece is how do i hold on to that while i'm you know uh not in it and i'm trying to get others to 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 be part of that and to bring their own connection to it. Have you chosen that performer? Are you creating a clone of a band? No, no, no. I no. Um, yeah, we're we're kind of um, we've. It's been a long. It's been a uh, frustrating process of finding some people who I think are fantastic and can do it. But I mean, I think they could do it but the dates are very difficult to fit in with their schedule so of course people who are uh you know talented are also often busy and the freelance jigsaw that we all deal with is sometimes not um aligning uh yeah so we're, we're in the middle of that trying to, yeah kind of make that work somehow can you put your your uh 
advert for for the role in this podcast with a bullet point. Like, I need a performer who. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I could try and do that. I think I, I realize that maybe it's maybe I'm not the right person to to recast it. Maybe I need someone else to kind of to to look at it and go, what what is that? Because I am I am involved in my own connection to it, and 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 sometimes that feels difficult. I think that. Um, there's movement in it. It doesn't feel like that is, yeah. I mean, it's weird because it feels like there's acting in it, but I think the movement is beyond what most actors would do. So there's certain things in there which are like I, I, I like the 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 kind of extremity of some of the movement, and there's some duet stuff in which is improvised but it's based on contact work and th that kind of thing she's like yeah okay so it's great if they can do that um i need to believe them as well so that's like we talked about earlier some kind of thing and i need them to be funny as well so that's also another thing and um of course i've made a piece you know i i, I <laughs> Yeah, I, I've done things that I can I can do. So we were talking about you know getting kind of better at being yourself, and and I and I have tried to let go of the things I'm not so good at. So of course, if I made that piece with a different performer from the beginning, it would be a very different piece. So the replacing is, you know, it's difficult. But yeah, I'm sure they're there somewhere. The next question is a tiny bit political. <laughs> uh, we were talking about. The British Council showcase for the festival, the Edinburgh yeah. Festival. We've been talking about uh, the Place Prize. We've been talking about the National Critic Awards. We've been talking about the Olivier. Mm. And uh, now that I work in a tiny bit more in Europe, uh, those kind of things sounds like uh, coming from Mars mm. to the people in Europe. Mm. And I don't know if it's your experience, mm. but for me, it feels like there's a, a big barrier between the UK and what's happening in Europe. Yeah. Is that your experience? And if so, why do you think is that? Mm. We have done some touring in Europe, but not loads. And uh, I'm not sure. Yes, I agree. There feels like there's a kind of fluidity in mainland European scene between festivals and, and promoters and countries that we are somehow not not kind of part of and I don't know why that is I mean I feel like there's often this uh, a slight inferiority complex uh, I certainly felt that when I was at the place this kind of feeling that we all wished we were Belgian and all you know were wanting to live in Ghent and be part of this thing and we were a bit like oh we're not quite there and so maybe it's to do with that a slight kind of inferiority thing or feeling like we when we don't quite belong to that tradition the the visual theater or the dance theater of Pina Bausch or you know we're, we're somehow not quite part of that but I don't know I mean I feel like there's some really great work that comes from the UK and I think that the situation with funding and with how we rehearse stuff is quite different and I feel like sometimes that means the work is often a bit sketched, you know, sometimes it feels like this great, but it somehow hasn't had the, the time or the deepening that uh, it needs. Um, 
I, I would like to do more of that. I would like to be more connected to the, that kind of scene and hopefully that's happening a bit for us now. But yeah, you know, I work a lot with English, with, with language and sometimes there's that kind of uh, sense that when we were in Paris with the Rombert show, there's this kind of sense of, oh, there's an English humour here. And that's okay, but I feel like sometimes that's also used a little bit like it's it's quirky or, you know, these kind of words which keep us a little bit outside. It's, it's something there and it's, not, it's almost like it's not quite taken seriously. I can think of lots of reasons why, why that is. I think, I think, again, you know, you look at... I don't even want to talk about it in this context, of course, but you look at Brexit and this idea of how we position ourselves as a country and we try and keep ourselves a bit separate and we want to be connected to the states but we also want our relationship with Europe and if you think about that that's exactly how it feels in the dance world you know we have this kind of connection to Martha Graham and Merce Cunningham and this thing that's looking there and then we've also got this desire to be part of what I think of as a more kind of visual um, theatrical tradition and again, for me, I was like, I, I, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a white English man. <laughs> and I, I, I need to be okay with that as well, because otherwise I'm constantly going to be, yeah, trying to be something that I'm not or wanting to be something that I'm not. So it feels like, I don't know, when I feel optimistic, I, I feel like, if if we could ignore Brexit for for a moment, that that there's a there's a kind of maturing somehow of of UK dance work, and hopefully that means there'll be more. Uh, yeah, well, I would have said that before, but now now now, now there's lots of reasons to feel less optimistic about it. But yeah. Yeah, for those who are listening to us and, or, or watching this and are not familiar with the British scene, I think you're very, very right. And I, I have to defend that uh, very often right now in Europe sometimes because there is, um, in my experience, there is kind of like, um, there is that corkiness or mm. that uh, old school or something mm. like that. And while here in the UK in the last 10 years are incredible things happening, mm. like, like Ben Duke and uh, is things that hopefully little by little are getting creeping into into Europe because so so people from the mainland Europe mm. research what what's happening here and, and I hope this podcast makes a little bit the bridge. Um, last time uh, I was t- talking to some people, I was interviewing Ginader and Maria Campos, who mm. are an amazing couple. They are doing incredible work. They are going all around Europe and here in the UK. They are not very well known mm. unless you've taken one of these workshops in Berlin or in Barcelona. So I think we need to start making those bridges because us as artists, and this is yeah. my idea, we, we need to go beyond those regulations and those yeah. politics uh, politics agendas that are just trends. Yeah. 20 years ago, it was trendy to be European in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now it's trendy not to be mm-hmm. European. So mm-hmm. so yeah, that, that's a call for action for, for artists from yeah. here. It needs to be happening. Three more questions. I was going to ask two, but I have three more questions. And this is questions that I ask all, all our guests. Uh, and so you can answer as, as deep as you want or as, as quick as you want. So the first question is, how the hell do you manage your schedule and your energy? Mm. Yeah, sometimes not, not well at all. So at the moment, there's this uh, kind of restructuring, I suppose, of 
of the company uh, and, and what are the things that I do well and what are the things that are just a kind of, yeah, you know, a waste of, of energy or, 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 or kind of thing. So I, I suppose the main thing at the moment is me trying to um, not say yes to everything, which is a habit I think lots of uh, kind of freelance people acquire you know you 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 finish your training and there's a hunger for work and a need for work and there's a kind of mindset which is like I just say yes to things and and then when you're being asked to do more things you have to adjust so you start saying no to things and what are the criteria for saying yes and no and there's a kind of strategic uh, conversation about how do you keep a profile or how do you make your activity look um coherent from a from a kind of funding point of view or from an arts council point of view and then there's the uh, artistic interest question and they're not often sometimes they can overlap but they can often be diff quite different conversations so i think at the moment it's me trying to say no the default be no rather than the default be yes and then to try and really consider what that thing is and how that impacts on this but also on my family life and my time here or how my time traveling i think i think like everyone else it's you're just i'm just juggling the whole thing and sometimes it feels like the balance is wrong and sometimes it feels like you've got it right and then that's a short moment and then it goes wrong you know it's like that and that's something quite consistent uh, with the people that i've been talking that one of the secrets of managing your time your energy is to be able to say no yeah and it's incredibly difficult it's really hard. And, yeah. and but it was fantastic to hear you do, those two tips very very clear is mm. one is strategic mm. for funding and, and how i manage that it seems that my activity, it seems, and in reality, my activity is consistent. Mm. And then the other one is how artistically interested mm. I am into it. Mm. For young uh, performers who are listening to us uh, very often, what would you have to say? What would you be your advice? Like, or how you would include in the equation the financial instability, mm. the financial need of having to say yes to oh, everything that comes to your way? Yeah. How do you factor that? I don't know, but yeah, what I think we know what we want to say yes to. So if I think about myself when I was kind of finishing college, I think I knew the things that I was interested in, and I feel like if I'd been better at saying yes to those things, that would have helped me define who I was and define the kind of performer I was and the kind of work I wanted to do, and that would have involved saying no to certain things, but actually trusting that almost the the faster we 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 get not we don't arrive somewhere but the, the quicker we're kind of you know defining ourselves then the the easier it is for the for the world to kind of understand who we are and not necessarily pigeonhole who we are but to kind of understand that and maybe then the the, the route to kind of hopefully financially fruitful and artistically fruitful work is is uh clearer or faster maybe uh, but it's, it's really difficult it's very tricky to be mm -hmm. able to say no but i fully agree with you that the the sooner you learn that yeah and, and being clear with your criteria and knowing knowing to listen because as you said we all know yeah but it's difficult to to yeah. make that to make that voice that that, that decision yeah. 
in the program something very very important that uh, I was not expecting that to happen but at some point we talk about commitment no? mm. this idea of if you don't perform no one else can perform for you yeah but through that and how you might you must commit to your performance because otherwise it's not happen how important is to commit to not commit mm. and it's like well I was committing to run today for one kilometer but I I wake up and I'm not good, I feel mm -hmm. tired. Okay, I'm committing now to not commit to mm -hmm. my run. And how important that is. And yeah. So it's, it's here, it's yeah, great to, yeah. to hear that, that, uh, that you feel that it's also faster because it's something consistent yeah. that I hear with age. Yeah. It's very difficult to yeah. grab when you are. Yeah. Doing. But it's that thing that, pe I mean, we say it a lot to people, uh, often students, you know, the idea of auditioning, like you are auditioning them, you know, they are auditioning, exactly. and that, again, it's a kind of, it's a hard thing to do because you, you want the job, but, but actually you know whether this environment, this way of working suits you, and if it doesn't, it's going to be very hard for you to, to be, um, yeah, to bring of yourself, to give of yourself to that process, so then everyone ends up feeling a bit dissatisfied, whereas you know, you're in something that you love and believe in, then it's your your kind of creativity is going to be engaged in a very different way. Mm. Definitely. If, if it's something that you love, it's something that you make everyone's lives uh, better and the process uh, benefits and you grow as an artist and as a person. And I was reading a, an article that you wrote for The Guardian a couple oh. of years ago. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> And it's fantastic because a couple of times while your creation with uh, of of gold. All right, yeah, yeah. And it mm. was kind of like a, a little journal going into the rehearsal. It, it's really good if someone hasn't read it. This uh, is the Guardian. It was I think it was June, July, two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, Something yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I will post the the link in the okay. in the description. But then it was fantastic because a couple of times you wrote, "If this would be an ideal world, I would." Oh, yeah. it would happen if yeah. this would be an ideal situation, but it's not. Yes. Let me ask you very quickly, what is your idea of an ideal world? And more importantly, how the people that are working with you can make the situation a tiny bit more ideal and how you, as Ben Duke, mm. make the situation with the people that you're working with a tiny bit more of an ideal world. <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the ideal world often involves um, more time. So I think the ideal scenario for me would be um, uh, be able to work down here. I love working kind of in, in, in this place and feeling far away from uh, the rest of the world. So I suppose in that ideal world, uh, all of the performers would need to uh, have their kind of private lives in a state of suspended animation so that they could afford the time to kind of come and be down here. And that would be a process of, that would be, uh, I don't know, I, I think maybe um, a period of two months or something of, of investigation and work. Then I would like a, a, a break, you know, I don't know, space and time, and then to come back for another month and start putting it together. And then the idea in the ideal world, there would then be a, a premiere that was um, important enough to make me finish the piece, but not full of... Uh, you know, um, reviewers or people who were going to 
judge it too much. So it would, it would exist in a kind of I don't know where that would be some some kind of place where it's important. There's a there's a bit of fear, so I've got to finish it. But then we've got another two weeks of performance before anyone you know um, any of the gatekeepers uh, kind of see it. Um, so I think the ideal world would be something like that, uh, and all of the. Oh yeah, no. There would be in the ideal world. There would also be a, a two-week kind of tech in a in a in a wonderful um, theatrical space uh, with every, every all of your your kind of collaborators around. Can um, you provide it? Yes. Yeah. Them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And lots of time to kind of two-hour lunch breaks to to eat together and um, yeah, something like that. Uh, and also in an ideal world, that would be it. There'd be a, it would be a company. Yeah. So people who, the, the, the kind of depth of relationship and the amount of time you'd work together meant that you were moving on somehow. You weren't kind of, uh, um, uh, you were moving on, on together. So yeah, there we are. So the ideal world would be something like that. But, um, I also know that I always crave more time and sometimes more time doesn't make the work better it doesn't make it doesn't help me agreed <laughs> and i'm going to tell you one is uh, right now it happened one of the most amazing moments of this uh, conversation which i think one of the moments that i'm going to treasure for the rest of my life is i saw ben duke disappearing before my eyes to go into that ideal world uh-huh. as you disappeared right. the path <laughs> I lost. it was fantastic <laughs> to see that smile and that disappearing right. into that yes. and seeing you Enjoy mm-hmm. that idea. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to ask you the last question before I hand it over, yeah. which is um, very, very simple. Do you have any resource, uh, book, film, documentary, music that has changed your life? Something that, something that you recommend very often, something that it comes to mind is like that, that, mm-hmm. that was all a few of them. The, the ones that I, t- I find myself talking about quite a lot are... Um, There were books that we were given, I think, when we went to drama school. So they were the usual kind of list of books. And it was, they're probably on the shelf. Some of it. Uh, True and False, which is David Mamet's short book about acting, um, which I remember reading. And it had a profound kind of effect on me because he is saying, um, you can basically, you can lay you like where you are and how you are feeling on top of uh the character stuff that you're doing or that or, or actually the two can coexist so this thing of like um you know the backstory the the more Stanislavski and all the more kind of method like thing of you know staying in this thing he was kind of saying you don't actually need to do that you can say the lines you can do the role but you can also stay connected to where you are in that moment and for me that was a kind of revelation because it that was my experience of watching theater and being on stage was like what i love about it is that you can't you can't suspend your disbelief like we talk about suspending disbelief and you can up to a point but what's delightful about it is that it exists alongside the reality of it so i love it when you see people make mistakes i love it when bits of scenery fall over i love it when all of this stuff happens and yet the show 
carries on, which takes me into the the next thing, which is the Tim Etchell's book, uh, Fragments, so Tim Etchell's from Forced Entertainment. And I love that book for a similar reason, that he, he talks about this thing of like Forced Entertainment being like a group of really crap magicians. He's like, you know, we roll up our sleeves, we don't have anything there, the set is crap, the acting's a bit crap, the costumes are crap, everything's just not good. But in spite of all of that, in in so many forced entertainment shows, I, I I am transported by them and by what they do. And that sits alongside who they are in that moment. Well, the other one, I suppose, would be the, the Peter Brook Empty Space mm-hmm. one. Again, just because of the, the simplicity of that idea of theatre is just, you just need one person to agree to be a performer and the other person to agree to be an audience and then you're off and that's uh, I love that as a starting point the, the power of the poor theater I can see yeah yeah yeah, exactly. well, yeah 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 and no matter how much Hollywood can pour millions into that cannot be replaced yeah. by a man describing a dance that he would never do because <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it keeps it's, falling apart yeah it's it's something to feel optimistic about because as you say we're you know saturated with so much uh, uh, media and and uh, stuff on screens, but actually, it can't do this thing. It can't. It, it can't replace it. And uh, that is that is the reason to be joyful because uh, it means that there's still um, there's still a reason to do this. You know, to do this thing. I'm gonna hand it over to see if we have someone online. Okay. Elena, mm-hmm. who is here? You wanna jump in and pass you this? Uh, hello. Hello. And um, I had questions that were actually quite similar to Jorge, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting. But I wanted to maybe ask because we, I also did literature, I also did some theatre, and mm-hmm. then I also ended up dancing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really curious about that trajectory and why dance was the thing that felt like the one better to hold you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's. It's kind of weird. I, I felt that when I went to the place that there was, um, I, I mean, I felt kind of out of my depth and like I couldn't do so much of this stuff, but I also felt a sense of arrival and like this is a kind of, this is a tribe of people that I feel very connected to. So I think it was almost like that emotional a sense of, home or belonging or something which I hadn't really experienced in those other environments I mean I loved I loved the drama training but I was like this, I don't quite fit in this world and then the the the, the experience of um arriving at the place and feeling like this is uh yeah yeah, yeah. so I think it was to do with that that meant that it kind of had a had a hold on me even though it was the one that I found you know so much harder than uh, than literature or or the acting s- stuff i was like wow this is really um but maybe i also like that about it it had a kind of it had something concrete about it as well yeah mm. and it was similar like um what Jorge asked about the imposter syndrome, like if mm. you felt that imposter syndrome within dance and mm. then how did you negotiate with that feeling and how did you deal with it yeah i mean yeah, I, I, 
I suppose I struggled with it and um, initially thought I could, because I didn't really know about dance, I didn't really know any dancers, I didn't know the kind of length of time that most people trained in dance. I thought, you know, I can get to this place, I can spend two years or three years and on. And it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't the case, you know, and, and that it was going to be a much longer process. So I think there was a kind of a letting go of that of that idea and yeah, almost trying to embrace the the outside the feeling of being an outsider and maybe that's slightly different from being an imposter. It's like okay, if I if I if I try to be this kind of dancer, I feel like an imposter, but if I position myself as an outsider who can't do that but who can maybe comment on that or who can maybe use that in a different way then that felt like a uh, yeah more positive place to be and, and less uh, uh, damaging uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um, yeah. after many years working within dance how do you keep yourself nurtured and inspired in this field and for me books is a big part of that and watching theatre is a big part of that um, I feel like I still want to just keep watching stuff because every now and then there's a show which just sits kind of lands with me and yeah. I'm not sure if I then spend the next few years trying to imitate it or if I spend the next few years trying to understand why it was so good or so I feel like that's yeah I have to keep trying to, to see things mm -hmm. And one question which I didn't expect to ask as well, but you named your company Lost Dog, mm. and I was wondering what was the inspiration for you? <laughs> um, Lost Dog was, uh, yeah, it was to do with um, trying to think of things that were about mixtures. And, and uh, I like the idea of, of a mongrel, like as a, as a dog that wasn't, a crossbreed but that was made up of many many different things and had slightly lost the sense of heritage but was its own thing so that was the word that when Raquel and I were talking about it, it was kind of mongrel but mongrel has negative yeah. connotations yeah. in English and, and uh, so that took us to Lost Dog and also I was I think I was reading this book called Disgrace which is J.M. Coetzee I've read it. Yeah, yeah, have you read that? He's from South Africa. Yeah, he's South Africa. Yeah. yeah, amazing. I've met him actually. Have you? Yeah. Wow. I think, yeah, he's an amazing writer. That book, I think, is extraordinary. On the front of that book, there's a very, um, the, the edition that I had is a very thin, stray dog. And um, yeah. it was somehow so, such a great cover. And when I read the book, it became an even better kind of cover. Mm -hmm. So there's something about that as well that, that was in my head, I think, at the time when we were trying to come up with a name for the company. So. Okay. Mm. Cool. Mm. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> Last couple of questions from Bridget. So, she said... Hi, Ben. I hope you're well. I've got four questions. First one, um, what are your thoughts on using improvisation as a tool in performance? Two. How do you manage the multitasking 
of generating text and movement at the same time, both in the creation process and in the performance. Number three, what does authenticity mean to you? And number four, which is kind of related to the previous question, how can a story be told authentically? Thanks. Bye. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> Those are some big questions, no? Improvisation. <laughs> <laughs> Using it to generate material feels, um, yeah, just endlessly fascinating and useful. And I realize that I'm quite, um, yeah, I have a strange relationship with improvisation because I've, I realize that I'm not quite, I'm, maybe I'm too controlling. So sometimes that thing of uh, when I've worked with Rick Nadine or Seke and there's that kind of embracing of, you know, if you're really going to go into improvisation, you have to be open to this thing taking its own, to, you know, taking its own journey and going wherever. And I'm like, I like that, but I also want to keep the shape. I also want to control the outcome of this thing. So it feels like in performance, I'm offering little moments of improvisation, but it's almost like they sit within a scene which has a beginning and an end. And we like in Juliet and Romeo, we both know how this scene kind of ends. So we know that if we're going to say a different line or we're going to do something else, we, we have to get back to a certain point. So it feels like there's pockets of freedom within it. Um, but I think the thing is always looking at it and going, is this, is this, is this better if I set it? Like if I set it, what, what do I gain and what do I lose? And trying to work out, uh, yeah what's uh, so so for movement it's like is this going to be any better if i set it or is an improvised score going to keep a, a kind of freshness that means it stays um it's yeah it's better i suppose that's that, that that's the only way i can judge really whether and with text i think that the all of the text that we make for the text I made for Paradise Sosa, text for Juliet and Roma, is all done on our feet. So it's not like we're sitting and writing, we're, we're standing and improvising. Mm -hmm. And as you repeat the improvisation, you notice which bits of text you remember and which bits kind of stay. And so that process then carries on into the, the being on stage where some of those scenes are loose and then in the process of performing, they become tighter but somehow you hold on to the feeling of improvisation. So you hold on to that sense of, I'm not repeating lines that I have learned, I am improvising, but the improvisation happens to be the same each time, which obviously defeats the point of improvisation. But so, so it feels like there's something of the spirit of it or the feeling of it, which is important for me as a performer to hold on to so that I can believe that I am making this up. Keeping it fresh, yeah. and making yeah, yeah. it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The juggling of things. Um, I suppose it doesn't feel to me. It doesn't feel like juggling. I think the the hardest thing about it is is the kind of body, like how you know, if you warm up at the beginning of the day, how do you keep that availability in the body if you then spend two hours sitting there and talking about something? So that feels. That, that part of it feels difficult. Like, how do you keep those things available through 
throughout the day. And But the actual juggling of stuff doesn't feel, for me, it doesn't feel that hard. It feels like um, the question is always the same. Like, let, is, is, this, is this better if we just say it? Or is this a bit where we feel like moving? So it can be a kind of, yeah, um, not so much a juggling, but almost like a kind of, uh, a collage feeling of like okay let's do this now I feel bored by my voice so let's try moving or I feel physically tired so let's try talking it feels like it, 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 it's experiential so the choices are like how, how do we feel inside it? and that can be the day or obviously on stage you know we've made those choices already but you can still be that thing of um yeah, I shift. I shift the medium. I shift the mode of expression, but it's all still part of telling this story. Yeah. Um, the idea of authenticity. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's it's um. It's a, uh, it's a tricky word because it's kind of this idea of authenticity and honesty and some kind of believability of performers um, my understanding of it is that if you are able to connect to something that is real for you then we believe it as audience and that sounds very simplistic but I found in Paradise Lost that I needed moments that took me right back to a particular memory and I needed to create space and time on stage to connect to that memory. And if I could do that, then that would offer me a kind of fuel for the next bit. And I think Juliet and Romeo is similar. Like if, if there's moments where I, it feels like... Um, it feels like a dropping somehow. It feels like a dropping in to myself and that gives me a feeling of, yeah, authenticity, I suppose. So if I'm working with other people, there's some process around that of how do we, how do we find that connection and making sure we take time to make that connection. So, you know, that can be just don't rush through it, but find the time on stage to do that. Mm. So does that answer the last bit of that question? It was about uh, yes. authenticity, how do you tell a story? Yeah. So I think the, the, the answer for me at the moment about telling a story authentically, it is, doesn't mean it has to be your story. Like it doesn't mean it has to be your autobiography. But within that story, where are the kind of islands or where are the, where are the, where are the moments where you um, feel yourself uh, connecting to that, to that memory? Because I think there's that thing about reliving and repeating, which they're very different things, aren't they? So how do you relive? And I think you relive by putting that, by getting into that memory. Um, yeah. Yeah. Segner normally talks about presentation and representation. Right. It's presenting something for the first time. Yeah. Because it cannot be repeated. It's, it's, it's happening yeah. now. And if you're repeating the same line or trying to, represent something that already happened in the past right. which is I yeah think very yeah i think yeah i think very yeah, accurate. That, that's, that seems true and we see a lot of i think dance particularly can be quite guilty of 
re-presenting because the the rehearsal has happened, the decisions have happened, and a lot of dance rehearsal is about how you can get rid of the the mistakes. And so you're watching something that's kind of done already, yeah. which can be yeah. not so great. Yeah, it's, it's how, what are the techniques to, to keep that magic? Mm. And even something is hyper-rehearsed, how mm. it can be presented for the first time, mm. because it's never going to happen again. No. It's happening in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit what we're trying in this program as well. Yeah. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Now I understand why people like you a lot because he's <laughs> very, very generous, not only in your performances, but no, talking it's, and, it's, and it's, with your answer that I love having a little bit of like a window yeah. into your brain. <laughs> that I could carry on, continue talking with you forever because I, I have notes. I feel like I want to talk about autobiographical work, mm -hmm. how do you recover from up and lows and how yes. I have lots of questions, but I think it's a, it's a good moment to say thank you again for thank receiving you. me in your home, You're for having this conversation, being so open. Yeah, thank you for disappearing into <laughs> <laughs> that imaginary world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure and I, I really hope that it will be a, another one in That's the future so. because yeah. It's That's been great. it's been fantastic, and I have lots of more questions for you. That's great. It's, it's been really a, fascinating. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I really really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.